scripture passage today. It's Exodus 7, uh, verses 25 through chapter 8, 19. So Exodus 7, 25 through 8, 19. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go, so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace, in your bedroom, and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials, and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for, your official, for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. This is God's word. Our Father, uh, we ask that you would speak to us as we just sung. We pray that you would feed us with your holy word, your word that brings new creation and life into our dead hearts. Father, use your word to transform us into the people you want us to be. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as probably many of you know, it's good to have a friend in high places. Right? You're applying for a job and you want your resume to make it to the top of the pile. Knowing someone on the inside can help a lot. I saw an article recently that said an estimated of 70% of jobs aren't ever publicly posted for people to apply for, and as much as 80% of jobs are filled through professional and personal connections. Or take, say, the presidential pardon, which I'm sure had some good reason for being instituted however many years back it was, but today it just kind of feels like a get-out-of-jail-free card, not for those most worthy of it, but for those who have friends in high places. Having someone with power or influence uh, can catapult your career 
by years. It can open up doors that would normally be closed to you. And conversely, if you don't have some of those connections, right, life can be all the harder. And you will learn sometimes it feels like it's really not what you know, but who you know. Everything can feel twice as hard. You feel like you're working twice as much and doors just keep closing. You feel all alone. No one has your back. No one will pick you up if you fall. And in our passage, we see this role for Moses that will only become more and more important as we move through the book. Moses as an intercessor for others. Moses is like this friend in high places because he has a connection to God who's in charge of everything. Moses prays on behalf of Pharaoh to end the frogs. Moses represents Pharaoh to God. Later, we're going to see how Moses becomes an intercessor for all of Israel. And his work is really a foreshadowing of the work of Christ as his intercessor for you. An intercessor is someone who is watching out for you, pleads on your behalf, cares for you, uses his connections to, to help you out, who you know, states your case for why you need this help or whatever it is. And the best intercessors are those who are in high places, right? Because they have connections and influence. And what I want you to remember this morning is that Jesus is your friend in high places. Jesus is your friend in high places. And we're just going to look at this very simply. We're going to walk through the story and then draw out three applications from it. So our passage begins by saying, seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Now, this could mean that after seven days of the Nile being blood, it then it, it, it ceased turning to being blood. It could mean that it, it went away after seven days. It's actually really hard to tell how long each of these plagues lasted, and if some of them even overlapped one another. I don't know about you, but kind of growing up and hearing these stories, you kind of thought of one happening after another, but it's not all that clear from the text. For most of the plagues, we aren't given any time duration. Although some people think that as the plagues begin, and it says seven days passed, that one thing that was typical of some of these ancient stories and ancient accounts was that when something is introduced near the beginning of a cycle that repeats itself, you can kind of assume the same thing is basically assumed in the rest of the story. So that possibly each, we have a new plague introduced about every seven days. But we don't have all the information that we would like. Like, how long did all these plagues last? When did they get clean water again in the Nile? But there's all kinds of details that probably we're wondering that the text seems completely silent about. Now, actually, one thing that also people have noticed is that there's a certain arrangement and literary features to how the text and the organization of the plagues is presented. Many folks have noticed there's kind of three cycles of three plagues each that then climax with the ten plagues. So, for instance, in last week when we looked at the first plague, the water turning to blood, God tells Moses to confront Pharaoh in the morning. And then at the fourth plague and the seventh plague, God tells Moses the same thing. Go confront Pharaoh in the morning. We see that repeated. And then with the second plague, the frogs, God simply tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him. And then that same language is repeated for the fifth and the eighth plagues. And then for the third plague, the gnats, there is no warning to Pharaoh saying, you better do this or this is going to happen. Instead, God just says, go do this thing right now. And in the sixth plague and the ninth plague, we see that happen again, right? So there's kind of these three 
plague cycles that happen three times, and then it climaxes in the tenth plague. And that kind of arrangement should clue us into something. Sometimes stuff like that is just kind of a, a literary device to help people remember the story. Remember, most folks couldn't read this. They didn't have their own Bibles, and so these were passed on orally. But also, I think it shows that Moses is, is not writing the plagues kind of from the perspective of, hey, breaking news out of Egypt. Here's all the crazy stuff going on down there. You know, cancel your vacation plans. But no, he's taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture of what God is doing. He, he's not writing to answer maybe the first questions that modern people would have, but to answer deeper questions about how God is at work and what he's showing to Pharaoh. So we see this in the second plague. Right? Remember, these plagues were not just random things that were chosen, but more often than not chosen to undermine Egypt in the very places they thought they were strongest to beat Egypt at their own game. And so, for instance, the Egyptians uh, worshipped a goddess of childbirth named Kekwet, and she is often descript, uh, depicted in Egyptian art of that time as this goddess with the head of a frog. Right? And so we can see this connection. Re remember earlier in the story, Egypt sought to eradicate all the Hebrew boys, right? the infants. It, it was an attack on the Hebrew fertility. And now God is saying, all right, well, I can play that game too. Let me show you what your God of fertility is really good at, making a bunch of frogs, right? He is mocking the gods of the, Israelite, or of the Egyptians, right? Frogs breed even more rapidly than rabbits, apparently. And where do the frogs come from? Well, verse 3, it tells us, the Nile. And remember, the Nile is the source of power and blessing and protection for Egypt, it is what made them a global superpower. And God is continually turning the Nile into their source of terror. Right? So these frogs are just coming out in mass and they're jumping into the palace. Right? Just kind of imagine it with me. You're, you run to the bathroom and you can't get to the bathroom without squishing on a couple of frogs on the way there. Right? And every step you take, they kind of try to jump out of the way, but uh, invariably some jump and slap you right in the face. Like It would just be, you would go insane trying to deal with this. Right? You couldn't lay in your bed without a frog jumping on you. It, it reminded me of this past summer. When we were staying up in the very northern edge of Montana in this cabin, and every night, uh, Lisa and the girls would go upstairs to uh, go to sleep, and I would be reading downstairs, and like clockwork, at like 9.30 or something, this mouse would dart out of the kitchen and run across the living room. Now, I didn't say anything. Every night this happened, I never mentioned it because I knew how much Lisa loves mice, right? And it would just ruin the rest of our vacation. Well, days go on, and our last night there, Lisa says, you know what, I think there are mice in this cabin. Why do you think that? Was it every morning I see turds on the counter, right? Mouse turds. And so, and then last night when I was sleeping, I thought I heard this thing like scurrying over by the nightstand. Oh, that's interesting. Well, then five minutes after this conversation, a mouse darts out from the bathroom uh, where, you know, we're close to where we're sleeping under her nightstand, right? And so she kind of freaks out and she wants me to do something about it. And I don't really know what to do about it. Like, I don't have a trap. I remember one time this mouse scared me as a kid and I grabbed a pellet gun and shot it, which was kind of, <laughs> I was kind of impressed by. I didn't have a pellet gun, though. And, and so I shake the bed, trying to do nothing, you know, get the mouse out. There's nothing there. I shake it some more. Nothing happens. All right, well, the mouse must have gone in a, in a hole and ran away, right? Probably gone. So a minute goes by, 
And then all of a sudden, the mouse darts back out from under the bed and into the bathroom, right? And this time, Lisa employs some of her gymnastics and leaps on top of me in the bed, right? And she's like, there is no way I can sleep here. So Lisa ends up uh, going to the, one of the bedrooms that the kids are in, and uh, Hannah and Haley were sleeping in a bed together, and we say, well, mom's going to have a sleepover with Hannah, right? And, and then Haley comes and going to have a sleepover with me. We just miss it. We don't tell her about the third member of our sleepover, this mouse that's, you know, living under our bed. Well, I'm not afraid of mice, right? But like every time that night a piece of lint would fall on my face, I would bolt awake, right? Is that the mouse? Every time I'd hear a squeak, I would jump awake. Is that the mouse coming after, right? And and I, I have gotten way better nights of sleep, you know, pretty much every night of my life. Now, just imagine that situation, right? But it's not just one mouse that you're worried about, but frogs, right? And and your home doesn't come with an energy star rating like they do today, right? Where every crack and hole is sealed, every door is airtight. Your palace has more holes than Swiss cheese. There is no way you can keep the frogs out, right? It would be harder than a game of whack-a-mole, right? Every frog you slap away, another one jumps right in its place. And so you try to sleep with that. And maybe you get used to the sound of endless croaking in the background, but the moment you relax and stop moving, it's like an invitation for a frog to jump right on you and you bolt awake again, right? I mean, this would drive you insane. And then it even gets into your food, right? You can't make, you know, dinner without opening up a container and seeing a frog living in your flower bowl. Now, Pharaoh would have been insulated from the last plague. His servants could dig wells, and if there was any fresh water in Egypt, he would have been first in line to get it. But this was a plague that he couldn't be insulated from, or at least not as well. No matter how many guards he stationed around his palace, around his bedroom, frogs would keep making their way in. Now verse uh, 7 tells us, the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also make frogs come out of the, the land, and as we saw last week, Pharaoh's magicians can only replicate what they first see God do. Which, again, these so-called miracles help no one, right? Like, who in the world thought it would be a good idea to add more frogs into the mix when the land is already teeming with them? But all it does is stoke Pharaoh's ego. If they were smarter, you would think, maybe, hey, you know what? Remember when we turned staffs into snakes? Let's gather a bunch of staffs and repeat that miracle, right? And then the snakes can help us with eating some of these frogs. But then again, remember those snakes didn't show much gusto against Aaron's snake, right? Aaron's snake ate all of those other snakes, and it makes us wonder maybe all the Egyptians can do are make vegan snakes. I mean, it makes you wonder, like, how much is there true substance to these so-called miracles of the Egyptians, or is it more illusion that they're getting at than true miracles? But it's good enough to appease Pharaoh's ego. Well, hey, look, my guy's added 100 frogs to the mix. Right as he swats a frog off his throne and saying, this doesn't bother me at all. But then again, here's this key thing we keep coming back to. People don't oppose God because they need more information about him. It is almost always rooted, the reason why someone opposes God is because of a self-righteous pride. I want to be God, not worship him. And how many of us, for periods in your life, or how many of you have loved ones that you know that are spending years making life miserable for themselves 
and miserable for everyone around them because they are trying so hard to prove, I don't need God in my life. I can get on fine without him. Even though anyone looks at their life and you can say, you're miserable. But they refuse to let God on the throne. And they say, I can do it on my own. But eventually, Pharaoh has enough nights of swatting frogs off his face, right? And he's like, okay, I just can't handle this anymore. So he summons Moses and Aaron to come. He says, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away. And I'll let you go offer sacrifices to your God. So Moses responds, well, I'll leave you the honor of setting the time for me to to pray this. Now, this is a shrewd move by Moses, right? It's one also of faith that God's going to answer this prayer. He wants to remove any opportunity for Pharaoh to claim credit for getting rid of the frogs, right? So that he says, you pick the date and time, I'll pray at that point, and so you'll know that the miracle, that that it is the God of the Israelites who did this. So Pharaoh says, all right, tomorrow. Which you might think he would say, like, right this minute, right? But maybe he's trying to play it cool. Like, oh, you know, the frogs don't bother me that much. I'm just looking out for my people. So we can wait till tomorrow. So the next day, which is not real clear from the NIV translation, Moses prays, and the Lord did what Moses asked. Now, we're going to get back to this theme in a minute. Moses is acting as an intercessor. God isn't listening to Pharaoh directly, but he will listen to Moses speaking on Pharaoh's behalf. Suddenly, Pharaoh, who's supposed to be the highest of the high, realizes even he needs a friend in high places. And so the next day, Pharaoh looks out his window to see, all right, did it work? And yeah, it worked, but God left him a little present, right? He sees piles and piles of dead frogs. And he might have thought in his mind, man, I should have been a little more specific with the request. Send all the frogs back to the Nile and then kill them off. But then verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and he would not listen. As soon as the pressure's off, he gets some breathing room. He goes back to his old ways. This is so common for every single one of us. Something happens in your life, it shakes you up. You realize, okay, I need to change. I need to get God back in my life. I I need to stop doing this, right? I need to repent. But then time goes by and the pressure comes off. Things kind of get back to normal and you just slide into those old habits again. Your desire to change wasn't motivated by love or honor of God, but was motivated more just by your own discomfort. And then when you're comfortable again, you just slide back into old habits. True repentance is lasting. It's motivated more by love than by pain. And so God calls Moses and tells him the next step. This time, Pharaoh's getting no warning. We're just going to do it. Have Aaron stretch out his staff and strike the ground, and from the dust, gnats will come up and it will cover the land. Now, the the term here is a general word that can refer to any two-winged insect that bites, right? So this could even have been mosquitoes or something like that, right? Like, it would have just been horrible. And the land teems with them. I, I remember when I was a teenager, we took a trip up to the Boundary Waters canoe area at the border between Canada and Minnesota. And, and every night, as soon as the sun comes down, you would hear this humming, right? And we would all jump into our tents because we knew the mosquitoes were coming. Now, they would just swarm on you. But we had the luxury of tents with you know, mosquito netting and, and mosquito repellent. Pharaoh wasn't so lucky. 
Right? They thought getting the, keeping the frogs out of the palace was easy. Just wait till they had mosquitoes or gnats or whatever they were swarming everywhere. There was no way that Pharaoh could be protected. In fact, Pharaoh might have wished that he kept a few frogs around right, to help with this problem. But then we get something new in verse 18. When the magicians tried to make more gnats, or mosquitoes or whatever it is, because apparently you know, there's not enough mosquitoes, let's just add some more to the party. They couldn't. And why? We can't say for sure, but one of the things that many have noticed is that the first two plagues take place where? Well, they're connected to the Nile. And the Nile was deeply connected to the Egyptians. And things that harnessed the power of the Nile were right up their wheelhouse. They were used to performing signs that involved the Nile. But this plague is now moved to a different arena, the dust, the, the earth. Right, which is not where the magicians were used to working. And so the magicians go to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're saying the God of Israel, he's the real God. They're, they're simply saying, this is beyond what we can do. Right? This God has an expertise beyond what we're able to replicate. This is something unique. There's a greater power at work here. So does Pharaoh hear this and say, okay, well, maybe we're outmatched. Let's you know, negotiate with him. No, what's he do? Verse 9, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. And so our passage ends just as it started. Stubborn Pharaoh, hard-hearted, and everyone around him is suffering more because of it. Doesn't seem like any progress is being made, right? Everybody's just more miserable right now. And from the perspective of the Israelites, you might wonder, isn't God supposed to be saving us? Isn't Moses supposed to be helping us? Why are our lives harder because of it? And this brings us then to our second point, where I want to draw your attention to three applications in the text. First, we see this contrast between God's power and Pharaoh's. God's power is creative. He's setting the agenda. He comes up with the miracles. Pharaoh can only imitate them. God designed Oakley's, Pharaoh's selling Folkley's. And God effortlessly moves between the spheres. He operates in the river, but he's just as home as there is in the dirt with the, with the gnats, and then in the air with the plague of darkness that we'll see coming later. While Pharaoh is only able to keep up when he's operating in his sphere, something related to the Nile. And back then, we've said this before, many people, basically everyone believed there were many gods. And there were gods that had influence over his or her little area of the world, right? Or this particular phenomenon. They weren't all powerful gods, but they could display their power in different areas. That was kind of the worldview of the Egyptians. So one god had power over the Nile, the other had influence over the frogs. But Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is showing, I have no boundaries. Every God you worship has a boundary. I'm boundaryless. I can compete in any arena. The universe is my home court. And this fits with the purpose of the plagues. Verse 10. So that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. There is not one square inch that God does not have complete control over. Now, today, we don't have lists of gods that we're all trying to appease like the ancient people did. But we have, like they did, a very small view of who God is. We worship a God that has boundaries. We compartmentalize our life. So maybe you 
come to church on Sunday, but you don't act like Jesus is Lord on Monday when you're overwhelmed with all of your worries at work or at home or whatever it might be. Hey, just take a moment and think in your life, where do you functionally act like Jesus isn't Lord over everything? Where do you act like God isn't in control? Is it in providing for your family? So you're working so much to try to get this stuff or do this thing for them? Is it in how you spend your money? You think, well, it's my money, I earned it, instead of believing this is all God's and I want to use it how he wants us to use it. Is it in school? In conflicts with family? You don't trust that God can enter into those spaces. Every area in your life, God has complete control and he is Lord. And are you living that way? Another way to kind of investigate where you don't trust God or where you aren't acting like he's in control is, where are those places that you're worrying a lot in life? Where are those places where you feel this incessant need to try to manage or control things? Is it in looking for a new job? In conflict at work? In longing for a spouse? In worrying about how your kids grow up? God is in control of every single one of these details. And his control in those areas that you struggle to trust him is as certain as his control over the sun rising every morning. Right? None of us wake up and say, oh, thank you, God, that the sun rose again. Right? We just take it for granted because we, we, in some ways, trust he is in such control of that. But don't you see that's the same control that he has over the very details of your life? And you can trust him in there. The second application is in this repeated phrase, just as the Lord had said. Now Moses is writing this after all of these things have taken place. So he knows how the story ends. Yet we get little hints through it that he was struggling with trusting God in some of this. Some of the things that he's doing, it's making life harder on the Israelites, right? He's got the same attitude we do. You, you pray, God does this thing, and you expect everything to be fixed. Little does Moses know he's got to go through ten plagues before they get free. And there's this tension here. Is this really your plan, God? Are you sure we're doing the right thing? Because it's just making life harder for us. We don't see any relief. Which is what so many of us wrestle with. When things are good... We think, oh yeah, God's great, God's at work, God's at my back, God's blessing me. But then when things are bad, your immediate thought is, I doubt God. Is God caring for me? Did I get on, off the path? Is he forgotten me? But notice where Moses puts this repeated phrase. He doesn't put it after the cool things that happened, right? Pharaoh struck the ground and mosquitoes covered the land just as the Lord had said. No, that's not where he puts it. Notice, it's very intentional. It's after it looks like things aren't going to plan that he puts that phrase in there. He puts it twice in our passage. Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Both times, it's repeated. God is just as in control when things aren't going your way. It's like Moses is writing to teach us this lesson that he had to learn the long and hard way. Just because it feels like you've hit a roadblock, or just going in circles, right? Another plague and the same thing happened. Just because things are getting worse. Just because so-and-so changed his or her mind and now you, you feel stuck. 
That does not mean that God is not in charge and things are not going according to his plan. What looks like a roadblock to you is like a sign marker that God is using to point you in the direction he wants you to go. So are you struggling to trust God in the valley, in the darkness, in the dead ends? Remember Moses' words here. This roadblock is just as the Lord had said. And the third thing I want us to see is that we have a better mediator. Throughout these ten plagues, God is showing the Egyptians and us that he is better. He has no boundaries. He is the God above all gods. He is the man in high places. He's the one that you want to have your back. But then our first reaction is, well, but why would that God listen to me? Why would he care about little old me? Who am I? I've screwed up in life. Why would God care in a moment when he's the king of the universe about my small life? But that's why it's so important to have a mediator. To have someone who has the ear of the Father. To have someone who sits beside the Father and listens to his words. And that's what Jesus does. He is the one that sits at the right hand of the Father. He has the Father's ear to plead for you that through him you have access to the very throne room of heaven. That's the power of a friend in high places. And look here at the, the power of an intercessor. God knows that Pharaoh's going to harden his heart when the frogs are gone. And yet when Moses prays on Pharaoh's behalf, God doesn't say, Moses, guess what? Pharaoh's just going to harden his heart, so I'm not going to leave him. No, I'm not going to remove the frogs. No, what does God do? He listens to Pharaoh, or till he listens to Moses, knowing he will harden his heart afterwards. That's the power of an intercessor. And friends, we too have a friend in high places. Jesus, the one who intercedes and pleads and represents us. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews draws this out, particularly in, in chapter 2. It writes, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant, but his work was an illustration of the truths that God would reveal later. Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house, and we are God's house. You might not have anyone that's got your back here in this earth, you might not have any connections. And from the outside, you might feel like no one is looking after me. And you feel all alone. And maybe you're stuck and you can't get out. Jesus wants to be your friend in high places. To plead for you. To represent you before the Father. To pray for you. So will you look to him? Will you trust him more than all these other things, more than yourself? Will you get off the throne in your own heart and give it to Jesus? Will you acknowledge your sin and realize that he longs to take it from you? Herman Bovink writes this about Christ's intercessory role. Over against all the charges which the law, Satan, and our own hearts bring against us. And he's saying, all the things that accuse us, right? You beat yourself up. Others point out your sin. The law of God shows you how far you fall short. What's our hope? Jesus takes upon himself our defense. 
Jesus is defending you. He comes to our aid in all of our temptations. He has pity for all our weaknesses. He purifies our consciences. He perfectly sanctifies and saves all who pass through him to the Father. He prepares a place for them in the Father's house. He preserves them for their heavenly inheritance. Therefore, this is what this means for you. Therefore, the believers have nothing to fear. Do you have nothing to fear? That's the friend you have in Jesus. Jesus is your friend in high places. He pleads for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we do have Jesus, who gives us direct access to the Father, to you who represents us, who pleads for us, who watches over us every day, and who hears everything we say. Father, would that allow us to live knowing we have nothing to fear when we face the temptations of tomorrow, the difficulties of today, the heartbreaks of our own sin, and the stress of others' sin against us. Father, help us to live knowing Jesus has our back. And that he, through you, is in control of everything. Amen.